You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. One of the observations that we made in the last few weeks was it, while it's often spoken about how the Prophet ﷺ, and this was part of the tarbiyah, you know, the Prophet ﷺ says, That my Lord taught me adab, and He taught me a most excellent form of adab. Meaning to put it into terms that my Lord instilled within me certain very specific and excellent qualities and characteristics through the upbringing and through the experiences that I was put through. And so most definitely it was preparing the Prophet ﷺ to connect with the divine. Like no other human being had ever connected with the divine. And to be detached from worldly things, unlike any other human being ever before him or after him for that matter. And part of that upbringing in Tarbiyah was of course a slowly pulling away of you know, people and things that normally human beings are very attached to and that they lean on very heavily. Such as his, mother, his father, he never knew his father. Then his mother being pulled away, being taken away at the tender age of six. Then his grandfather at the age of eight, not having any biological siblings. But at the same time, there was a balance in the Tarbiyah of the Prophet ﷺ, the divine Tarbiyah of the Prophet ﷺ, because at whatever point in his life, whose ever care he was in, even though it wasn't what typically is experienced by a human being, you know, never having the father, then um, being in the care of Halima, um, uh, Sa'diyah, and then coming back to his mother, and then his mother passing away and being in the care of his grandfather, then the grandfather passing away and being in the care of his uncle and not having some older brother or older sister that kind of serves as a stand-in for the parent. Not having those things. But at the same time, there was this much balance in that divine upbringing of the Prophet ﷺ to where whosoever care he was and at that particular time was a very, very affectionate, loving human being. That the Prophet ﷺ never had any shortcoming in the amount of love and affection that he received. And we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks how, you know, Abdul Muttalib, how affectionate he was towards the Prophet ﷺ. That it was almost like, you know, he, he was, in some narrations, he was past the age of a hundred. At the time where he's taking care of the Prophet he's the primary guardian of Rasulullah But it's almost like he was able to reach deep down inside, reach back into his past, and kind of pull out a couple of more good years. Where he was so diligent, he would wake up and uh, take care of the Prophet He would feed the Prophet He would make sure he had breakfast. He would take care of him. He would take him everywhere that he went. He would make sure that he went to bed and he put him to bed before he himself, he went to sleep himself. So it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided a loving, caring individual, to, a guardian to care for the Prophet Then when he transfers into the care of his uncle Abu Talib, we spoke about that towards the end of last week's session. How Abu Talib, again, this is an elderly man, He's his father's older brother. So he's a lot older. Plus on top of that, he has a family of his own. And on top of that, he's inherited some of the responsibility from the grandfather, from his father, Abdul Muttalib. But in spite of all of that, again, it's as if Abu Talib just has this burst of energy and he has this motivation and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants him the ability to be able to care for the Prophet no less than how a parent would care for their own child. So there's a very interesting balance in the upbringing of the Prophet ﷺ. So now we're at the phase and the point where the Prophet ﷺ is primarily in the care of Abu Talib. That is his guardian, that's whose care that he's in. Now, one very interesting incident that occurred, and this is again one of those types of incidents, like we've, we've spoken about the splitting of the chest, something that's fairly well known. But yet, alhamdulillah, by looking at the classical sources of the seerah, we're able to learn it in a lot more detail, and we're able to learn it a lot better. Similarly, another very well-known incident from the life of the Prophet ﷺ pre-prophethood, before prophethood, is the, the meeting with the monk by the name of Buhaira. That, that's another very well-known incident that when the Prophet ﷺ was able to meet or he came across the monk by the name of Buhaira. And so that's basically what we'll be discussing here today. Now there's a difference in narrations uh, in the books of Sirah 
in the classical text and references of the seerah as to what was the age of the Prophet The minority uh, of scholars of seerah and hadith and the life of the Prophet the prophetic biography, they're of the opinion that the Prophet was about nine years old at the time of this incident. And the only thing that we, the, the, the main thing that we would learn from that, the unique lesson that we would get from that is, this happened very soon after the Prophet ﷺ came into the care of Abu Talib. So it was a very early on experience, not just for the Prophet ﷺ, but also for Abu Talib. Which would then later impact the way they handled, uh, the way they went forward managing the, the, you know, the, um, the life of the Prophet ﷺ how they managed his travel and how they managed his interaction with different types of people. The majority of the scholars of Sirah, and this is what you find in the majority of the books of Sirah, is that this occurred when the Prophet ﷺ was 12 years old. So it happened a couple of years after the Prophet ﷺ had now been living under the care and the guardianship of Abu Talib. Regardless of the fact, nevertheless this happened when the Prophet ﷺ was still very, very young. So Abu Talib was a businessman. Abu Talib was a businessman, that's what he did. And the, the method of business which we talked about in the early sessions of our series here on the Sira, where we talked about the condition of the Arabs and we also discussed the economic situation of the Arabs. We talked about how they were businessmen and the way they did business was they would either travel to the north or they would travel to the south and they would bring goods that were exclusive, that were specific to those regions and Mecca kind of became this central location where everybody could come and find goods from all over the Arab world. And so it was kind of like a central hub. So they themselves didn't have any products that they um, were able to manufacture or produce, but nevertheless they served as a very strategic, almost like a business center or a business hub where all these products were brought and then sold. And especially because of the Kaaba being there and the season of Hajj coming and the Arabs would frequently visit uh, and frequent the Kaaba, because of that it was an ideal location to have that type of a business center because people were already coming so it was almost like a tourist attraction and so it was a perfect place to set up uh, a big you know, mall, if you will, to set up a big business center. So Abu Talib was one of such businessmen. And one year, and again, Ibn Kathir and uh, Ibn Ishaq and some of the more classical uh, scholars of uh, Sirah, they take the position that the Prophet ﷺ was about 12 years old at this time. And some of the more authentic narration in the books of Hadith also mention the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was 12 years old. So Abu Talib decided to go on a business trip to Asham. All right, while today we translate Asham as Syria specifically, but it's not just an area which is known as modern day Syria, but it was a broader region. All right, so overall he was traveling to the region of Asham. And Asham at that point in time in history, and we talked again about this in the earlier sessions, that Asham was ruled by the Roman Empire. It was an extension of the Roman Empire, and they had come and taken over it, and they had set up shop in the area of Asham. So there was a strong Christian presence in Asham. So Abu Talib was traveling there, and there are two, again, narrations, and they both kind of make sense because you can understand how they both kind of correlate to each other. One of the narrations says that Abu Talib was making preparations, and you know, these business trips, and we've already talked about how the great-grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, Hashim, he died on a business trip. The father of the Prophet ﷺ passed away on a business trip. Even the mother of the Prophet ﷺ passed away on the way back from Medina, just a visit. But nevertheless, travel was something that was very difficult at that time. And it was no place for women and children. Women and children had no business being on these business trips. And so Abu Talib is making preparations and getting ready to go and making sure the family is all safe and comfortable while he'll be gone. And it's said in one of the narrations that the Prophet ﷺ, this, this child of 12 years old, and you have to understand that his world was this man, Abu Talib. His entire family was this one man, Abu Talib. It was his uncle, he didn't have anybody else. And so he was very attached to him. And when Abu Talib is packing his stuff and getting ready to go and saying his farewells to the family, the Prophet the narration says he starts to cry. This 12 year old child starts to cry. And he cries very, very profusely. And he says, don't leave me here. 
I don't, I, I don't know anybody else. I'm not comfortable with anybody else. Who, who, I, don't, I don't know who else I can rely on. Don't leave me here by myself. And Abu Talib tries to comfort the Prophet ﷺ and the other family members say, of course, what do you say? You know, typically the conversation, oh, he's just a kid, leave him, choro. Right, he's just, he's crying, he's being insistent, he's just being a kid. Of course you can't take a child on a business trip. Who takes a child on a business trip? Don't worry about it, he'll be okay. Tomorrow he'll forget about it, he'll be running around with the other kids. But the Prophet ﷺ is really honestly very, um, he's very distraught by the departure of Abu Talib. And Abu Talib is equally distraught at the distress of the Prophet ﷺ. He's troubled by the distress that Muhammad ﷺ is going through. And so Abu Talib says, I, I can't go like this. He says, no, I refuse to go. And he says, Wallahi la akhrujanna bihi ma'aya, wa la ufariquhu, wa la yufariquni abadan. He says that, I swear by God that I am going to take him with me. And I will never leave him and he will never ever leave me. So he comforts the child by saying, don't worry, I'm gonna take you with me. I don't care who disagrees, I don't care if the business, the rest of the business caravan refuses to take us along, I don't care what the family has to say, don't worry son, I'm not going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you by yourself ever again. Don't you ever worry about this. And so, you know, and again, I, I hate to jump forward into the seerah, but later on, when the, when the divine revelation comes and the mission of the Prophet ﷺ begins as the messenger of God, and at that point in time, even though Abu Talib doesn't accept Islam, doesn't um, come into the deen, doesn't accept the deen himself, but you understand why he's so devoted and loyal and supportive of the Prophet ﷺ. You understand why he so vehemently defends the Prophet ﷺ. Because of this deep emotional connection. So he says, I swear, son, I'll never leave you. Don't you worry. I'm not going to go without you. I'll take you with me. So he takes the Prophet ﷺ with him. While they're traveling, they stop, uh, they stop in, in the area of Asham at a place by the name of Busra. And it was near some, it's, it was a small little like village almost. And it was near some other major cities and areas, but it was kind of on the outskirts. And the Quraysh business caravans would often stop here. It was kind of a low profile location. It was a safe place. And there were usually some, you know, amenities in the area for them to be able to get some food and maybe have some water to kind of wash up and clean up and things like that. So they had a normal procedure. It was standard operating procedure for them that they would stop off at this place and this was one of their stops. So they stop off at that place. But one of the unique things about that location was that there was a temple, there was a little, you know, uh, a little worshiping center there. And the reason why I'm not specific as to whether it's a synagogue or it's a church, and I'll explain that in just a second, but just think of it for now that there was a, like a little temple, there was a little monastery that was there. And that monastery in that temple was primarily inhabited by a monk by the name of Buhaira, Al-Rahib. And there's a little bit more detail given to us about this monk. Now, the first question is, is that, again, majority of the scholars of Sirah and the books of Sirah say that he was Christian. There are some accounts of the Sirah though, however, they mention the fact that, no, he was rather a, um, he was Jewish. But again, the majority of the scholars say, no, he was a Christian monk. And one thing about that little monastery at the place of Busra was that it had always been inhabited. It was always run by, it was always inhabited by one of the greatest scholars of the Jewish Christian tradition at that time. That it would always be inhabited by one of the most well-researched, well-educated, uh, well-read Christian monks of that era and of that time. He his seat, his chair was the monastery in Busra. And, they, and it was reserved for not just a big high-profile monk or priest, but it was reserved more for a monk or a priest who was very well-read, who was a researcher, who was an academic. And therefore it was good because they would kind of exclude themselves. They would separate them because they weren't pr public preachers. They weren't people person. Like they weren't, they weren't, he wasn't a people person. But it would be reserved there for that person to be able to go there. And it said that that monastery in Busra had a library which was probably one of the deepest and most, um, you know, well-stacked libraries of ancient sacred texts. 
out of all of the, in all of the Christian lands. So there were some manuscripts, some handwritten manuscripts of ancient text and sacred text that could not be found anywhere else in the Christian kingdom at that time. And that, so that seat would be reserved for one of the most well-read, well-researched academics of the Christian tradition, a monk, a priest of that nature. And he would go there so that he could be separated, he could be secluded, he could just read and read and read through all these ancient manuscripts. And whenever anybody had a question or had any type of a deep inquiry, then they would travel out to Busra and just ask the questions that they needed to and go about their way. So there was no public preaching that was done there. It was a research center. And it was a seat that was reserved for the greatest Christian researcher that was alive at that time. And so whenever the, the, the monk or the priest occupying that seat, that chair, the, the monastery in Busra, whenever he would get old and be near death, he would handpick his successor. He would handpick his successor. So Buhaira was the latest in a long succession of priests and um, uh, monks of that caliber, of that level. And he was resident there. And Buhaira completely fit uh, the position. He was literally to the point of being antisocial. The locals that lived in the area would stay away, way away from him because he didn't like interacting with people. He was almost to the point where he was a little, he was like a grumpy old man. He wasn't very pleasant to talk to, he wasn't very pleasant to deal with. And so he didn't show a lot of affection to the locals. But when these Quraysh, when the Quraysh, when these Arabs, these Quraysh, these pagans, these idol worshippers, these mushrikun would pass through on the way to business, he absolutely wanted nothing to do with them. He would literally avoid them completely while they were encamped there. He wouldn't even come outside of the monastery when he saw, when he would spot them that they're here. He had a little place where he would sit in the monastery and he could look out where they were coming from and he would spot that, okay, the Arabs are here. Then he would just say, oh, I'm not even, the Makkans are here, the Quraysh are here, he wouldn't even come outside. He's like, I'm gonna let them pass, I want nothing to do with these people. So he completely fit the position. And it's actually mentioned about him in uh, some narrations, it's mentioned in some of the books of history, Ibn Qutayba mentions this in his book, that, you know, in, in in the old Christian tradition, it was said that there were three people of that era, of that time, that were the most knowledgeable people, uh, or that were the greatest individuals of that era, of that time, which we refer back to as Jahiliyyah, the pre-prophethood era. But from the Christian perspective, there was like this, uh, there was this understanding that there are three of main individuals. There are three really special individuals of that era and of that time. The first of them was this man, Buhaira the Rahib. And it said that Buhaira was a title or a name that he was given when he came into this position, but his original name is mentioned in some of the books of history as Sarjis. That his name was actually Sarjis, he was from the people of Abdul Qais. He was from Banu Abdul Qais, his name was Sarjis, but he was known as Buhaira al-Rahib, Buhaira the monk. And the second individual that's mentioned is that, that was of this great status in the pre-Prophethood era, the, the later Jahiliya period, was Riab al-Shanni, Riab al-Shanni, um, who's also referred to as Ibn al-Bara. And it said about this man, Riab uh, al that he was a very pious, righteous man who was upon, remember we talked about in the pre-Islamic period there were a few hunafa, a few people who were upon the proper teaching of the, the, the previous prophets who worshipped one God, they were, they were, monotheist, they were monotheists. So it said that Riyab al-Shanni was one of those such individuals and it's actually said in the books of history that وَقَبْرُ Riyab al-Shanni وَقَبْرُ وَلَدِهِ مِنْ بَعْدِهِ لَا يَزَالُ يُرَاعَ عِنْدَهَا طَشٌ That it said that when this man Riyab al-Shanni was buried, it was observed by the people of that time that there would always be constantly very light drizzle in that area as almost like a rahmah and a mercy, like a karama for this individual because of how righteous and pious he was. And then the third greatest person of that era, or rather he was like, this was a legend of that time. So the three great people of that era, they used to say was Buhaira al-Rahib, Riyab al-Shanni who had passed away not too long ago. And then they used to say, well the third greatest man of this era is Al-Muntadar. It's somebody that we still await his arrival. 
And based off of that, historians and the scholars of Sirah say that that Al-Muntadar was basically referring and alluding to Muhammad Rasulullah So just, this is a small little side note, but nevertheless, the point and the purpose of mentioning that is that Buhaira was a very, very well-regarded, well-respected individual, academic, scholar, monk, priest of his time. So, the business caravan from Quraysh from Mecca is traveling, Abu Talib is with them, and Abu Talib has a child with him, this, this young boy by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the nephew of Abu Talib is with him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And they stop at the place where they normally do, and like I said before, Buhaira normally would not speak to them, would not come out, would not interact with them, wouldn't even look at them, would avoid eye, avoid eye contact with them, wanted no business, wanted nothing to do with these people. So it said that Buhaira sitting in his monastery where he had this real, really great view. Because it said that the monastery was sitting up on a hill so that he could kind of look out uh, you know, uh, into the distance. And he could see the path leading up to that area in the monastery. And he's just sitting there doing his thing, just chilling. And while he's sitting there one day, he sees that the Quraysh and Makkans are arriving. And of course he sees that the Quraysh and the Makkans are arriving and you know, the typical reaction, he rolls his eyes like, oh God, here we go again. These guys are back. I wonder what they want this time. And, but then all of a sudden, the narration says something catches his attention. And Buhaira, again, being somebody of such intelligence and such research, it immediately catches his attention. And what he sees and what he spots is the fact that there's a cloud moving along with them. There's a cloud moving along with them, casting down a shadow upon a couple of people, one or two people, because of course everybody's traveling, they're kind of close, so it's traveling along with them. And when they stop at the place where they usually encamp, he notices that the cloud stops. And now he's really intrigued. And now he comes out of the monastery and looks even closer. And he spots that, okay, there's a couple of people there where this cloud is putting the shade. And then he noticed that one of them breaks apart a boy, he breaks apart, and the cloud follows him, and he goes and he sits down under the sh under. He sits down next to a tree, and this is the really remarkable part. He sits down next to this tree, and even though the the sh um, so uh, you know tr the shade of a tree is something everybody gravitates or attracted to, so the others they go and they're sitting under the shade of the tree. So the boy comes, since all the spot under the shade is kind of occupied and taken, he comes and he sits on the other side of the tree just to lean against the tree. And then Buhaira notices that the branches literally bend and move ever so slightly into a position where a shade is now being cast upon that child. And now Buhaira is completely blown away. Now he's, he's, he's hyperventilating. That is this the moment that I've been waiting for? My whole life I've been waiting for this moment. And he rushes back inside the monastery and he flips open all the texts and all the books and all the manuscripts that he can find. And he refreshes himself on everything and he, he reads that a shade will always cover this prophet of the last times. That the trees and the, all the creation of Allah will show respect and regard to this messenger and this prophet. And now he's very excited. And now he decides, and he reads about all the other descriptions that are provided in the ancient texts about this prophet of the last time. And so now he's very interested, he's very intrigued. So Buhaira immediately calls whatever students or, you know, uh, students and, and uh, devotees and followers that he has, he calls them and he says, I need you to go, here's some money, I need you to go and I need you to go buy a bunch of food and we need to prepare a feast. And they're thinking, what's going on? A feast for who? Nevertheless, he sends them, they go, they prepare, the, they bring the stuff, they start preparing the feast. And next thing you know, Buhaira comes down from the monastery. Now you gotta see the reaction of the Quraysh. The Quraysh are sitting there, just chilling, minding their own business, doing their thing, and all of a sudden Buhaira is coming their way. And so they're kind of like, hey, look who it is. It's the cranky old guy, right? And he probably needs something. Watch him, watch him. He won't even look at us. He'll pretend like we're not even here. He won't even like wave, say howdy, like nothing. And next thing you know, they notice that he doesn't change his course. He's walking straight towards them. And now they start to freak out like, oh God, what's going on? He's coming this way. 
And Buheira walks right up to them, and he's very pleasant, and he greets them. You know, how are you doing? How are your journey? How's your journey? How are your travels? And they're completely freaked out now, like, what's going on? And he says that, I would like to invite all of you, your entire group, to my home, the monastery, and I'd like to, you know, show some hospitality to y'all. Y'all are my guests. This never happened before. So they very quickly get past their shock and amazement. They're excited. Yeah, we get a nice meal while we're here. Some hospitality, finally. So in the evening, when they get ready to go for the feast, now they've dragged, you know, Abu Talib dragged along his nephew, this 12-year-old kid, who's being seen as a burden by everybody in the business, you know, the caravan. And so they decide, okay, there's got to be some advantage to bringing this kid along. So here's the advantage. We all want to go get our grub on. The youngin has to stay here and watch the animals. He's got to stay here and watch all the supplies and watch all the goods and watch all the money and watch all the merchandise and watch all the camels and everything. He gets to stay here and hang out. So they go about on their way nice and dressed up and cleaned up and freshened up. We get to go eat with the big famous monk today. They feel special. And they show up for the food and Buheira is scanning the crowd. He's scanning their faces and he doesn't see the boy. And so he says, again, he doesn't want to blow his cover. So he says, you know, Ya Quraysh, Ya Ma'ashir Quraysh, O people of Quraysh, is everybody here? Are you sure everybody's here? And he say, yeah, everybody's here. He's like, no, I think somebody's not here. He's having trouble, right, maintaining the cover. So he's like, oh, I kind of noticed somebody's missing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, there's one youngin with us. And, you know, we left him back there to watch the animals and watch the supplies. So he's chilling. He's doing his thing. Don't worry about him. He's nobody important. And he's just a child. And then Buhaira says, no, look, I invited all of you. I invited all of y'all. I want to I wanna show hospitality to everybody. That was my condition. And he's getting a little agitated. And they can start to sense that he's a little agitated. Now their meal's in jeopardy. So quickly, you know, one of the Quraysh before Buhayra loses his cool. Because remember, this is a man who doesn't deal with people a whole lot. So he's getting very agitated very quickly. He's losing patience with these, with these pagans, with these ignorant folk. And so one of the Quraysh realizes, he kind of reads the signs. He's like, man, I'm hungry. I'm not about to lose this meal. Right? So um, he's, he speaks up and he's like, no, no, ya buhira, ya rahib. He's like, no, 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 don't worry, everything will be okay. He's like, we never should have done that. How, you know, how thoughtless of us that he's Muhammad ibn Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib. That he's, he's a very special child. He's the son of Abdullah who was the son of our leader, Abdul Muttalib, the famous Abdul Muttalib. He's Abdul Muttalib's grandson. He's the progeny of our leadership. So, of course, we never should have left him. That's very thoughtless of us. Don't worry, I'm going to go run and fetch him right now. And he runs and he comes to the Prophet I mean, the Prophet is sitting there quietly under the tree, very quiet, very thoughtful, you know, just reflecting deep in his thoughts. And he comes and he grabs the Prophet and he says, come on, we have to go. And he brings the Prophet And then, of course, the food begins and the food starts and everyone starts to eat. And it's said in the narrations that while they're eating, and he actually prepares a huge feast for them. And so they're, they're getting their grub on full scale. And while they're eating, it said that Buhaira is sitting there. He's literally staring at the Prophet the entire time. He's staring at the Prophet the entire time, very intently. Just focused in, honed in on this child. Looking at his facial features, looking at his mannerisms, observing him, watching him. Staring at him the entire time. And once everybody kind of is eating their food, and then you know what happens when the food kind of starts? Initially, there's some awkwardness. Everyone's trying to be very proper, very nice, and very polite. And then once the food starts to flow, and everybody starts to get full, and gets loosened up, and now they're all eating, and they're laughing, and they're joking, and they're, you know, they're, they're chilling. It's, it's a nice social occasion. And when everybody kind of gets distracted, the ice has been broken. Now Buhayra slowly makes his way over and sits next to the Prophet and he shows a lot of affection to the Prophet He places a hand on his back. And he says, 
how is everything, son? Is everything good? Do you like the food? And he takes more food and presents it to the Prophet And this is not just so that he can kind of get this child comfortable, so he can start asking the questions that he really wants to ask. The scholars actually write that Buhaira was fully convinced that this is Nabiyu Akhir Zaman. And so Buhaira is actually doing khidma of the boy that he you know, believes to be the Prophet of the final times, that this man, this boy will grow up to become a man who will receive divine revelation. So some of the scholars actually write, this is Buhaira actually doing khidmah of this prophet, that will I live to see the days of prophethood or not? Only Allah knows, I don't know. But let me take whatever opportunity I can get now to show respect to this great man, this messenger of God. And so he, he, you know, he gives him food and he serves him food and he puts more food on, eat, 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 boy, come on. And he's being very nice to him and he's comforting him and he's serving him more and more food. And then he starts to ask some questions. And of course the Prophet says is a child. So now when he's getting more food put in front of him and he's eating, he's also getting comfortable. Now he starts answering. And of course the Messenger of Allah some part of his nature that Allah instilled within him was he was very honest, brutally honest. Very, very truthful. There was no conniving, no scheming, no, none of that. And so he's asking him questions, and the Prophet very honestly is answering the questions. And he asks him very pointed questions. He asks him about how he sleeps. What does he see when he sleeps? What does he do throughout the day? What kind of thoughts does he have? Does he play with other children? What does he like to do? What does he not like to do? And he starts asking him all these questions. And increasingly, he becomes more and more convinced that this is that boy, this is that child, this is that messenger. And it also says that he notices the mark of prophethood on the back of the Prophet ﷺ. Now how that exactly happens isn't really explicitly provided that whether he just requests to see it or he places his hand and kind of, you know, kind of rubbing the back and showing affection to the child. He feels the, the mark of prophethood. Wallahu ta'ala alam, Allah knows best. But he, he, he's able to confirm that that mark of prophethood is there on his back. And so now Buhaira's excitement, he can barely contain himself. Now when everybody's all full and they're just laying, kicking back and they're all waiting for the tea to come out and they're all chilling, doing their thing, that's when he kind of moves closer to Abu Talib who's sitting on the other side of the Prophet He moves closer to him and he wants to speak to Abu Talib. And he asks Abu Talib that, what is your relation to this boy? What is your relation to this boy? And Abu Talib says, Hua ibni, it's my son. Because remember, affectionately, he treats him like his son. Cares for him like his son. So he says, he's my son. He says, he can't be your son. So he says, yeah, he's my brother's son. He says, where's his father? He said he passed away. He says, when did he pass away? And he said that he passed away before he was born, while his mother was expecting him. And he says, you're speaking the truth now. Now you're, he says, sadaqt. Now you're speaking the truth. And then he says, look, all I'm going to tell you is that this nephew of yours is a very special child. That there's something very special about this nephew of yours. And then he says, you're heading further into a sham. I strongly advise you don't go. Or you at least don't take the child. Because just like I've noticed something special about your child, and actually, subhanAllah, one of the narrations, it's a weaker narration, but I'll mention it here. But it's a weaker narration. That when the Quraysh initially came to Buhayra's monastery for food, and they left the Prophet ﷺ back behind, and he asked, where is, you know, who's missing, and the child's missing, and said that the conversation a little, went a little further and Abu Talib actually said, yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's my nephew or he's my son, whatever. And he said that, you know, I left him there, he'll be okay, he'll be fine. And one of the narrations actually says that he takes Abu Talib and he says, look, look at him. You see how the tree is bent over him? And then he actually says, you know, send somebody to go and call him. And when that one man from the Quraysh goes and calls the Prophet and the Prophet starts to walk towards the monastery, he says, now look right above him. You see the cloud following him? That's your, that's your nephew. 
So one weaker narration actually says that Buhaira actually points this out to Abu Talib. But nevertheless, according to the more you know, well uh, narrated tradition, he has that conversation with him and then he tells Abu Talib, you know, just like I know that there's something special about your nephew and I'm telling you, I was able to see things that, let, that confirm for me that your nephew is a very special child, a child that we've been expecting for some time. There are other people in Asham who will also know similar things. And they will notice those things. You people are not people of, of, of the kitab. You, you, don't, you don't understand, you don't know what we know. There are certain things that, you know, the more well-read and well-known, uh, well-educated people of our tradition and our sacred tradition, there are some things that we know that you're not aware of. And there are people like that in Asham, deeper into Asham, the territory you're going into, and they'll notice those same things. But they might not be as merciful as I am. They may not be as, you know, willing to, you know, um, believe and be, um, be optimistic or be as pleasant as I am. That they, some of them might have some ill will towards that child. Or they might want to try to grab that child for their own gain or their own motives, their own agenda. Either way, you'll be putting that child in some harm's way. Don't take him there. So, taking the advice of Abu Talib, uh, taking the advice of Buhaira, Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, decides that what's best is for the Prophet ﷺ to return back to, for Muhammad, his nephew, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to refer, return back to Mecca, to the safety of Mecca. Now, there's also a couple of other narrations which mention the fact that while the Quraysh was there, so when he has this conversation with Abu Talib, and Abu Talib assures him, he goes, I'm going to make sure the child gets back to Mecca, don't worry, I'm not going to take him further into a sham. That while they're there, they're encamped there, a couple of people do arrive from Asham. One narration says that five people come, one narration says that seven individuals arrive. And they arrive to Buhaira. And they come to Buhaira and they, you know, he welcomes them, they're from Asham, they know him, he knows them. And he asks them, he goes, why are you here? And he said, and they tell him that, look, we've been reading some of the, you know, ancient manuscripts or sacred texts that we have and all the signs and all the narrations and all the prophecies align to the fact that that Nabi of Akhiru Zaman is a child and he's supposed to be in this area in this region right here at this moment somewhere around this area and there's nobody who knows more about those ancient sacred traditions more than you do is there anything that you can tell us have you seen him can you spot him is there anything more that you can share and Buhaira grows very worried because again, he doesn't know whether he can trust these people with this information or not. So he tells him, he goes, he goes and he says, hold on, let me check my, my, my own personal notes. And he goes and he checks them and he comes back and he says, I don't think you're, you're reading things correctly. I don't think that you're expecting or you're reading things correctly. I don't, I don't agree at all that he's supposed to be here right now. He kind of covers so that they move along on his way. And then he goes and informs Abu Talib that look, some people just came looking for your nephew. You need, to, you need to make a move on this now. Now from here, what exactly happens, there are three types of narrations, three types of traditions in the books of history as to what happens now. A very small minority of the tradition or the narration, the historical account, and the scholars of, this, of the prophetic biography, the seerah say that Abu Talib decides to take the Prophet with him, but decides to keep him very close to him and decides to kind of cut his business trip a little bit shorter than scheduled, but nevertheless keeps him with him, goes, takes care of some business quickly, kind of leaves the rest of the business caravan earlier than they would like to. They decide to stay longer and conduct some more business. He goes, takes care of a little bit of business just to be able to pay the bills back at home, and then takes the Prophet back home to Mecca. The majority of the narrations or the tradition says that no, Abu Talib decides to return back to Mecca right then and there from there. From Busra, from the monastery of Buhira, he tells the rest of Quraysh, listen, I have to get back, I, I have something pressing, something has come up very urgently, I have to head back home. And he departs from the business caravan, and takes the Prophet straight back to Mecca himself, to the safety of Mecca. There's another account that is mentioned, and this is actually mentioned in some of the authentic books of Hadith and Seerah. 
Imam Tirmidhi rahimahullah has mentioned this, and many classical and contemporary scholars have vouched for the authenticity of this narration. However, some other classical scholars have differed with this narration and choose not to take this narration, even discuss the validity of this narration. And Ibn Kathir himself in Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah differs from this narration, from this tradition. And what that narration, what that tradition of Imam Tirmidhi, what it states, is that at that point in time, there are other, even some young people in that business caravan, and there's another young boy in that business caravan who's been brought along, who's come along, due to his business acumen and his business aptitude and the talent and the early ability this one young boy has shown, the Quraysh decided to bring him along to kind of give him a jump start. They decided to let him skip a couple of grades and just you know, get an internship kind of early on. And they decided to take him along so he can start learning on the job, on the task, and get some real world experience. And this is a young boy by the name, or who would later on be known as, by the name of Abu Bakr. And it kind of works out well because this other young boy happens to be very good childhood friends. He's, very, he's buddies with the other young boy that's been brought along by Abu Talib, Muhammad. That these two young boys are really, really good friends. And so there's another one, another young boy in the business caravan by the name of Abu Bakr, but this, this young boy who would later be known as Abu Bakr was brought along because he shows a lot of talent and ability for business. As we know about Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. He was an amazing businessman. And then there's another slave, another young boy slave that was brought along to kind of run some errands and do some things, you know, and do some menial tasks along on the business trip. And this is a young Abyssinian African slave by the name of Bilal. Imam Tirmidhi mentions this. And at that point in time, they kind of sit down and Abu Talib tells the rest of the business caravan that, listen guys, very regretfully, I have to inform you, I got to head back. And Abu Talib is still somebody they respect a lot and somebody they would like to have with them while conducting business in Asham. And so they're very, they're, they're not happy about the situation, circumstances. They're like, no, we can't lose you. We need you there to do business. You're very important to our business strategy. We can't lose you. It's a very crucial, critical business trip. You know, this is supposed to get us through till the next season. So we can't lose you. So what are we gonna do? I need to get my nephew home. So they're like, look, I know it seems kind of dangerous, but you know, it's just a couple of days of journey. And along the way, there are a couple of stops where they can be safe. And we know, remember, because the Quraysh used to take this trip quite often, they knew all the towns and all the tribes that were along the way. And they used to stop at regularly scheduled stops. You know, they had like, like you know, we have like travel rest areas, travel areas, truck stops, right? So we have these stops that are fixed. And those are good people, they're trustworthy people. There are, there are tribes of ours that are allies. And if our young boys are traveling through there, they'll take good care of them. Don't worry, they'll be all right. And especially if they're by, traveling by committee, one child we would be worried, but three of them, three young boys, they, they'll, they'll be there for each other, they'll manage, they'll be okay. And so Imam Tirmidhi actually mentions a narration, which like I said, <clears throat> some classical and contemporary scholars have authenticated this narration, <clears throat> that it is the trio of Muhammad ibn Abdullah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, and Bilal, radiallahu anhu. And this was the beginning of, uh, of a friendship that would last a lifetime. That subhanAllah, the scholars actually mention about this, that this connection, this deep connection that was there between these individuals, between these three people, started way early on, way back then, when they were still young boys. And they bonded in this trip. And such a bond was established between them that it never severed. And that's why when eventually divine revelation would come. And the Prophet ﷺ, one of the f first few people that he speaks to is his best friend Abu Bakr. That Abu Bakr anhu doesn't even pause or think for a second. He says, Ashadu wa la ilaha Allah. Wa ashadu annaka Rasulullah. And that's exactly the reason why Abu, nobody, you know, after the Prophet ﷺ, nobody was as passionate about the cause as Abu Bakr anhu was. That by the end of the second day of prophethood, he had brought seven people to accept Islam. And these were great, great kibaru sahaba that he had brought to accept Islam. 
That there was a reason why when Islam comes and immediately one of the first people to accept Islam is Bilal. Even though he's a slave. And he knows that his life will be in danger if he accepts Islam. And he endures all that torture afterwards. And there's a reason why Bilal gathers up all the money that he can find. And goes to the owner of Bilal. And he says, I want to purchase this slave from you. And frees him. And there's a reason why the Prophet chose Bilal as his own personal mu'adhin. Whether resident or traveling. Whether in residence or in travel, Bilal was his mu'adhin. That if I lead the prayer, Bilal will call the adhan and the iqamah. There's a reason why he chose Bilal and he depended on Bilal. Arihna biha ya Bilal. Arihna biha ya Bilal. And he would tell Bilal to go call the adhan and bring peace and comfort to us. That this connection was established way back then. <clears throat> that this is mentioned by some of the scholars. But like I mentioned that... <clears throat> You know, some scholars have differed with this, both classical and even contemporary. And uh, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, is one of those classical scholars that differs with this on the base, on the grounds of a few different things. One of the things that he differs with based on that is that this particular narration is mentioned by Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu, who would accept Islam later on. So he says, how can Abu Musa al-Ash'ari relate this narration when he accepts Islam in the Medinan period? Why or how is he relating this? But then there's an answer to that, that this, these types of traditions, Aisha radiallahu anha, you know the narration in Sahih Bukhari, where it talks about Babu Badil Wahi, the beginning of revelation that's narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha. How does Aisha radiallahu anha relate the narration about the beginning of revelation when she wasn't even alive at that time? So these types of narrations are called Marasilu Sahaba. Marasilu Sahaba. That these are mursal narrations, meaning it is one sahabi getting it from another sahabi, but that sahabi doesn't mention the sahabi where he got it from, but rather narrates or relates that tradition him or herself. Puts it on themselves. So they leave out one of the links in the chain. But again, marasilu sahaba are accepted by some scholars of hadith. Because as sahaba kulluhum adul, the sahaba, all of them are reliable and are trustworthy and are authentic in their narrations. So we can trust the Sahabi. So when a Sahabi says, the Prophet said this, even though he got it from another Sahabi, that's okay, that's acceptable. In the opinion of majority of scholars. So there is a counter to this. But Ibn Kathir also um, differs with this narration because he says, I have trouble kind of grasping the logic of this scenario. And again, whether or not that is a valid criticism of a narration, can be debated again. But again, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah is a scholar of the caliber where he has that legit, he has those grounds, he has that legitimate right, he has that scholarship where he can, you know, speak on these terms. You and I, we can't hear a hadith and say, you know what, the logic doesn't add up for me. Nobody cares what we think. All right? Ibn Kathir rahimahullah is of that caliber, of that status. Nevertheless, Ibn Kathir says that there are two narrations we have. One tells us that the Prophet is nine years old, the other tells us that he's 12 years old. Number one, Abu Talib cared for the Prophet such that he wouldn't let the Prophet go with a couple of other young boys. Secondly, Abu Bakr was very close to the Prophet in age. So even if the Prophet is 12 years old, then Abu Bakr himself is 10, 12 years old. And Bilal is possibly even younger than that. So how does that exactly add up? It doesn't work for me, he says. So Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Allah knows best about the validity of the authenticity of the narration. Nevertheless, to conclude, we know this much for a fact. They arrive there, Buhaira al-Rahib sees the Prophet sees the signs of prophethood all around and on, on the Prophet is deeply affected and has full convictions that this is the Messenger of Allah speaks to the Prophet confirms his suspicions, speaks to the uncle of the Prophet and says, you better be careful. You need to be very careful where you take your nephew. I understand you don't want to leave him. I understand that you're connected to him. I understand that he's very emotionally attached to you. But you have to be very careful where you take your nephew. Because other people might know what I know. And I can't vouch for what their intentions will be with this child. I'm here just... In shock and awe. I'm here to just be in the company of the child. I just want to sit as close as possible to this child. 
I just want to rub the back of the child. I just want to touch, make some physical contact with the child and say, I, I was in the company of the Messenger of Allah. But I can't vouch for the intentions of others and what their agenda, what their motives will be. So you be very, very careful. And some way, somehow, based on the different narrations, but like I said, majority of the books of Sirah do mention the fact that Abu Talib takes it upon himself to take the Prophet ﷺ back to the safety of Mecca and brings him back to Mecca. And this is that very famous, well-known incident from the childhood of the Prophet ﷺ, known as <clears throat> the interaction, the meeting with Buhaira al-Rahib, Buhaira the monk. All right, and when the Prophet ﷺ met him there. And of course, you know, he continues to grow and continues to remain in the care of Abu Talib, a very, very um, devout, a very, you know, uh, well-mannered, a very dignified, honorable, respectable individual. And of course, the Prophet ﷺ receives very good tarbiyah at the hands of Abu Talib. And the Prophet ﷺ, as he continues to grow now, displays more and more exemplary character. And he really, now he's, a, he's starting to become a teenager at this point, and he really starts to come into his own. He really starts to display amazing character and amazing behavior, and starts to become an exemplary young man in this society, and more and more people are impressed by the character, by the dignity, by the honor of this young man, this teenager. And he displays, he, he, he has just this natural aversion to the useless activity uh, that a lot of other young men, they indulge in. He doesn't indulge in any of the inappropriate activities of young men. You know, throughout time, this is a timeless fact, Young men throughout time, when they grow to the age of puberty and adolescence, start to notice the opposite gender, start to show a lot of interest in the opposite gender, and many times, unfortunately, start to behave very inappropriately or speak very inappropriately about the opposite gender. And let alone the times of jahiliyyah. All right? And we definitely understand what that's like today. But the Prophet naturally would have a, he had a huge aversion to that type of culture. He would completely just, as soon as the boys would start to indulge in that type of talk, and talking about her and talking about her, and noticing her and looking at her, the Prophet would immediately separate himself from the rest of the boys. He would forget about saying those things, he wouldn't even listen to those things. He would just go and sit separately. And he would distance himself from the rest of the boys. And the Prophet started to show this conduct and this character. And naturally, people in Mecca started to trust the Prophet. So when they wanted, you know, maybe a little bit of business here and there, they needed somebody to run some errand, they needed somebody to go deliver this money from here to there. Like, hey, you know him, fulan, fulan, there's some money, you know, like a courier, like a quick bank, bank transaction, something we do online now. You need to get some money to quickly to him, right? And so back in the day, you would just have a courier. You would take somebody and you would hand the money off to them and you would tell them, you know, go and deliver this money to them. But you have to be very careful because you were giving a good chunk of change to somebody and you didn't want him to disappear with that money. So the Prophet started becoming the go-to guy for those types of scenarios. They all knew, hey, look for Muhammad. He's a good kid. He's a trustworthy kid. And so very early on, from his early teenage years, the reputation of a Sadiq al-Amin began to be established. And this is where we leave off today with the Prophet in his early teens. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase us all in the love of Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahum bihamdik. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasaghfirka wa natubu ilayk.